Today's episode is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high-yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Dom Cook, and today we are breaking down the freight railroad business, Union Pacific. Union Pacific is interesting for a number of reasons. Its first tracks were laid in a time of horsepower, over 150 years ago. It operates a duopoly in the west of the US with Burlington Northern Santa Fe, a rail owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Despite being capital intensive, it earns higher operating margins than Microsoft. But above all, it is a crucial link in the global supply chain, moving much of what the US economy is built on. To break down this $140 billion railroad operator, I'm joined by Matt Russell, the CEO of Colossus and a former transport analyst. Please enjoy this breakdown of Union Pacific Railroad Company. Matt, you're normally on my side of the table. Welcome back as a guest on Business Breakdowns. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for today's conversation. We're talking Union Pacific, but I think it gives us a great reason to talk about rails in general. The world of freight railroading seems very under-discussed relative to its importance in the US and just general global supply chains. So hopefully we can shed some light on how it works and what makes it interesting in the course of breaking down Union Pacific. To start, I think we need to spend some time on the industry itself. There's a number of ways you can move freight around. Can you walk us through the transportation sector generally and why you would choose rails over, say, shipping, trucks, or planes? I mean, to answer the second part of the question, you might not choose rails over the other transportation sectors if you had a choice. Many of these businesses and many of the things that move on rails are just captive volumes that can't economically move via truck or via plane when you think about these heavy grains, commodities, steel, things that require a substantial amount of movement and a substantial amount of capacity, and rails are the only option there. But to frame the transportation market as a whole, in North America, it's about $900 billion in terms of market size. Rails make up about 10% of that. And you compare that to the much larger trucking sector, which is $600 billion. So you're talking about substantially different sizes here, rails just owning that one portion where it's a lot that has to do with the manufacturing economy, a lot that has to do with the industrial economy. You compare it to something like air freight, where that's similar in size to the rail economy at about $90 billion. And that's going to be things that need to move much faster. They're going to be much lighter in terms of weight and size, but things that you want to be getting to destinations at a much faster speed. So that's just a high-level overview. There's other factors that come into consideration as well. If you think about something like rail versus truck, there's a few rules of thumb that shippers generally use. We're looking about 400 or 500 miles as threshold, the break-even threshold, where it starts to make sense to move something via rail. And if you think about the cost and time that it takes to get something somewhere, a rail, you're going to save yourself 10 to 15% in terms of cost. And you're going to be getting it about a day late relative to the trucking market when you're talking about those distances. But I would say that if many of the shippers that are moving on rail today had a choice, they would like to have a lot more options to move their freight than they do today. For the rails industry generally, 
they're categorized into classes. You have class one, class two, class three. Union Pacific is a class one railway. Can you give us an overview of class one in America? A, what class one is? B, what are the class one railways in the US? And exactly what does the industry itself look like? What defines a class one rail is a railroad network that owns over 900 million US dollars in revenue. So it has to do with size and scale of the market. What's really interesting to see is how much consolidation there's been. And that's what's led to this extremely powerful network of companies that exist today, which many will call a oligopoly. Some will refer to them as lightly regulated monopolies. And I think those are fair characterizations. If you go back, there's some key milestones over the history of rails that have played out and allowed for them to operate that they do today, mainly the Staggers Act in 1980. At the time, you had a significant amount of railroad networks that still existed in North America, but not nearly at the size that they exist today. And you've had this grand consolidation over time, where at the time, I think there was around 40 class one railways or 40 large scale networks today, you can look geographically at the network across North America and see that you basically have two operators in the various regions of the continent. So you have two up in Canada, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific. You have two on the East Coast, CSX and Norfolk Southern, and two on the West Coast in Union Pacific and Burlington Northern, which is owned by Berkshire. But those make up the bulk of North American rail transportation. I think they account for 95% of rail revenues, about 75% of rail volumes that move through the U.S. And that consolidation has allowed that monopolistic behavior or monopolistic tendencies to play out. And maybe we can go there now and just put some finer details around the oligopolistic structure of the market and how those operate kind of in their twos and twos and twos across the country. How in practice does that play out? Is it a cartel-like behavior? Are they colluding on price? Are they colluding in other ways? Can you just give us some detail around that? It's helpful to really trace back to the beginning of history for rails. And I think this will paint a picture in terms of how we got to where we are today. So if you go back to the 1800s, this was the Gilded Age. This is where you saw this vast amount of wealth generated in the US from the Vanderbilt and Jay Gold. And one of the key milestones was the Transcontinental Railroad, which was built in the 1860s, not finished until 1869. You could now get from the East Coast of the US to the West Coast of the US in just over three days. And that compared to prior to that being three weeks if you were going to take a ship or multiple months if you were going to try to take any other form of transportation crazy to think about how groundbreaking that was in terms of changing the dynamics of the markets, changing the entire economy and what was possible in terms of coast-to-coast commerce. So fast forward to the late 1800s, these railroad businesses are really dominating the economy. The first Dow Jones index that came out in the 1890s, over 60% of it was represented by railroad companies. It got the focus of the regulators where pricing power, I think Rockefeller was the only one who was able to avoid the pricing power of the railroads, but it became a major focus. And you had the Interstate Commerce Act come into play and and start to heavily regulate railroads in terms of what prices looked like and how much control they had over that. And what that really led to was almost a century worth of deterioration in railroad networks, culminating with Penn Central Rail, which was a massive railroad in the US, declaring for bankruptcy in the early 1970s. And it was clear and obvious that after all these networks were deteriorating, there was no capital being put into them. It was an industry that was almost left to die. There needed to be a change. And that's when the Staggers Act came. The Staggers Act came in the form of really loosening the regulatory nature around the rail industry, actually allowing for them to charge lower prices That was before you had all these other forms of transportation around. You didn't have automobiles at the time. You didn't have a highway system. You didn't have planes. So you had all these disruptive technologies at the same time. Railroads weren't able to fully control their business. Staggers Act changed that. And over the next 20 years, you basically saw a massive decline in railroad rates. And that allowed for them to capture more business, reinvest back in their network, And that started the uprise in terms of these businesses turning back into true operating networks. Then you get to the 2000s. That's when you start to see there was consolidation along the way. 
but somewhat of a shift in behavior where before it was capturing volume, getting things back onto the system. Then it became a focus on operating efficiency, productivity, running these networks with an ultimate focus on profitability. And that's continued on for the past two decades. How that all culminates in terms of oligopolistic nature, there's a few things that you see. But what I think is most notable is you haven't seen volumes increase for the rails, particularly in a large portion of their captive business over the past two decades, essentially. So rails have really just focused on where they have captive business that they are 100% the only option to take and exercising as much pricing power as possible. And at the same time, not willing to move or sacrifice their network or sacrifice anything when it comes to economics to move any other volumes. And the regulatory system enables this in some creative ways. When you look at how the industry is governed today, it's by the Surface Transportation Board. But in order for any type of review to happen, a shipper has to bring a rate case to the Surface Transportation Board. So it's not as though rates are actually being set by a regulator. It is that rates could be protested and brought to a regulator. And those are the little pieces of friction that exist that really help rails protect their networks, protect their economics, enforce pricing power. And that's led them to get to where they are today, which is a business that at the start of the century was earning 10% operating margins. And today that number is closer to 40% plus operating margins. That's a really helpful run through the history. I feel like so much of the infrastructure that we rely on today that was built a long time ago, there's always a really interesting story behind the scenes um, between the state and private enterprise. I want to spend a good chunk of time on what might be some really basic questions. And maybe we can start at the atomic level. What is it that a rail network consists of? And what assets does a business like Union Pacific own? There's three main things that they own and operate. You have the track itself, which they have 30,000 miles of, of rail track. You have locomotives, and then you have the rail cars themselves. So if you go back to the rail track, what's really interesting is the history here. When you talk about why it's a challenge to build rail track today, a lot of it has to deal with most of the land now around the US is owned, and you would have to go through all types of hoops and hurdles to get easements done, you get trackage rights given in order to build any additional track. Whereas back in the 1800s, a lot of this was owned by the federal government. And as part of that original transcontinental railroad, the way that they incentivized companies to build that railroad, Union Pacific being one of them, was to not only pay them for the amount of track they built, but also to grant them the land rights on the track that they built. They owned basically miles on each side of their track. And the way that this got interesting over time was that a lot of that became incredibly valuable land in the oil and gas market. So if you flash the 1990s, Union Pacific Resources was one of the biggest oil and gas producers in the US. They ultimately sold the business to Anadarko for a little over $4 billion. But it just goes to show you how much value came from the trackage rights and also the land. You also had other interesting developments happen over the years alongside the rail track. I think people are always curious who owns this. And it differs by state by state, county by county. You have some cases where railroads actually do own the land. Most of that dates back to the 1800s. You have certain areas where there's easements. It's just they have the right to build there and operate there, but the land is actually owned by the landowner and other things that sit in between that. But what you will see alongside a lot of rail tracks is cable lines, telecommunication lines, a similar asset category where it's built alongside was federal land or now alongside rail land. And an interesting development that came out of the Southern Pacific Network, which is now owned by Union Pacific, was Sprint, the Southern Pacific Rail Internetwork train communication system. So that was a communication system that they had inside the company, eventually evolved into a communication network globally, or at least in the US. So really need to see what evolves out of these old historic companies. Got a little off track there. That consists of the rail track itself. And when you think about like what the cost to build rail track, it's about 75000 per mile of track. If you want to build 10 miles, it's going to cost you seven hundred and fifty grand. The next 
item is the locomotives, which these are very long life assets. These are what sits at the front of the train. And these have, again, 40 year lives. You've seen some development and some involvement, and there's some pretty neat history to the UMP locomotives and how they dealt with the mountains and generating enough power to move some of these halls over the challenging grounds that they had to. Those will cost two to three million in terms of what new equipment that they need to operate. And then the last item is the rail cars themselves. So you have hoppers, reefers, intermodal, and Union Pacific splits between owning some of these and leasing some of these. So they own about 60% lease the balance. And what's interesting about rail cars is it's another category where you could point towards industry, whether we call it collusion or whatever we want to refer to it as. One of the most fascinating examples is a shared entity that they own equity stakes in called TTX. And it's not something that gains much coverage at all. It's a fascinating thing that's hidden in the footnotes of these rail companies of financial documents. TTX basically operates for the sole purpose of serving these public rail companies. It's off balance sheet. So it doesn't generate profit. It borrows non-guaranteed debt, but it's able to borrow very cheaply because to a credit investor, they think of the rails as having some hidden guarantee on that debt. And it saves the rails probably 200 basis points from a margin perspective because they can simply take a TTX rail car wherever they need it, use it in terms of providing their service, and then leave it wherever their destination is. And TTX handles the rest. So just a very creative way which the industry has come up with a solution to certainly make metrics look much better. It does have an operational purpose to be in service. I think a rail car pool makes a lot of sense and mutually beneficial to everyone in the industry. But at the same time, it's this very unique entity. And it's how many industries can you think of that share some type of service, some company like this, if that doesn't point to some of the collective cooperative behavior between the rails, I don't know what does. Yeah, I think that's politely put. It brings up an interesting point. Is it right to think about freight railroads being completely independent to consumer railroads? So the trains that you and I would embark on, would they be completely different to these in terms of the rails that they sit on? They do share some track, but the freight rails want absolutely nothing to do with the passenger rails and want absolutely nothing to do with passenger rails operating on their track. So Amtrak, which isn't known to be operationally excellent in the US and anybody who rides it knows that it does not run with the efficiency of some of the freight rails, does share some track with CSX and UNP. And there's some payment structure that's made in order to operate on that track. But currently, you have Amtrak that is trying to reintroduce service to go down to the Gulf Coast. They haven't operated there since Katrina, something they want to reintroduce. And Norfolk Southern and CSX are doing everything in their power to not allow that to happen. Because if you have delays or any type of issues which slow down that ability to access the track, it is an absolute nightmare for the freight rails. And as you're bringing something from the West Coast to the East Coast, would there be a handover somewhere in the middle or closer to the East Coast where it goes from Union Pacific to another one of the Class 1 railroads? How does that work? Yes, there is interchange that happens. You can sometimes have rails operate on other rail systems. They get some type of approval to be doing that and then pay the rail just some fee. Or you can have an actual handoff at a facility where two tracks meet. One of the ways that you can define it is just looking up how many of the rails originate the majority of their volumes versus how many of those are essentially taking handoffs. So in this case, Kansas City Southern originates, I think, less than 50% of their volumes, meaning that they're getting it handed off to them from other rail systems, whereas Union Pacific has been north of 80%, the Canadians are north of 90%. And that's a key factor that plays into things. You typically want to be originating your volumes. That way you're not waiting at the yard in order for something to come in. You can kind of decide when you're going to pick that up. But yes, that does happen where you have interchanges. One of the main interchanges for the rail system is in Chicago, where 25% of the freight in the US touches. That is a major, major hub. And during peak season, that can be particularly intense in terms of the activity that's going on there. So let's focus even more on Union Pacific now. You mentioned they operate in the West. Who are their customers? What do they move? Can you bring the business to life for us? So I think it helps to picture the network first. Union Pacific as a Western rail 
actually covers two thirds of the US. So if you're looking at a map, you see this grand track that really has long hauls associated with it. And it's a major contrast to what you see with the Eastern rails, where while the Eastern rails only cover one third of the US, they actually touch two thirds of the US population. So Eastern US, much more densely populated. You have what they refer to as a spaghetti network, kind of looks like a bowl of spaghetti where you have a bunch of lines intertwined. And that can create challenges as you associate any type of track with more stops and starts. That's going to bring challenges in order to operate the network most efficiently. So that's piece one is just the visualization. And maybe we can add an image of the track itself to give listeners a sense of what it looks like. And then you start to get into the actual revenue base. So the way that Union Pacific breaks it down, which I think is a fair way to break it down, is you have 35% of revenue coming from the industrial economy, 33% of revenue coming from bulk materials, and the balance is about 30% from the premium category, which includes intermodal. And that 35% that's made up by the industrial economy, that's plastics, metals, ores, all things that are tied to industrial production, the industrial economy. And you can assume that they're associated with growth and industrial volumes and anything that you're watching around IP. The next third associated with bulk materials, these are essentially commodities, which each have their own supply demand cycles, grains, fertilizers, coal. But again, when we talk about monopolistic business, captive volumes, if you have your grain facility or your coal plant tied next to a rail track and you only have one rail track that you are next to, it is obviously moving on that rail track. So that's one of the areas where they have an extreme amount of pricing power. And it's just a matter of the supply demand that exists within that specific product, that specific bulk material that's going to drive some swings in terms of volumes. And then that last category, premium, which you have, again, the bulk of it coming from intermodal volumes and then the balance from other things like autos. These are things that are going to be a little bit more tied to the consumer economy. That's how you can think of it. You mentioned intermodal a few times. Can you just give us a quick 101 on what intermodal is? It's an incredibly important concept as it comes to rails. It all revolves around the idea of a standardized shipping container. This is not something that's completely new. I think the intermodal concept was around in 1700s, 1800s, where you were moving basically boxes rather than individual goods thrown onto a ship. You put it in a box, and that's one way to standardize the movement. It really took off in the 50s. Malcolm McLean was really the forefather of container shipping. And what happened here was it allowed for, rather than unloading what's inside the container when you're going to move it off of a rail car onto a ship or off of a rail car onto a truck, you could just unload the actual container itself. And it allowed for the simple transfer from ship to rail to truck and vice versa. And that brought down the cost of shipping significantly. So it was a major boon for international trade. And it was a challenge for actually many of the industries because it's standardized things. Again, standardization is good from a cost perspective, but it's essentially commoditization. And we know what happens in commodity industries. Rails were able to benefit here because they saw this as an opportunity to take things basically off of the highway and move them via rail, which now, again, much more cost effective, much more efficient to do so. So if you go back over the past 30 years, intermodal volumes have been a key driver of volume growth for the rails and basically been offsetting what has been stagnation in the other volume base. And today, about 50% of rail volumes are coming from intermodal containers. And that's up from about 25% in the early 90s. Now, the interesting thing to contrast that is only 25% of rail revenue comes from intermodal volumes. So there's an obvious mismatch there. If it's 50% of your volume, but only 25% of your revenue, you start to question, okay, what is the margin profile on this business? It's likely the lowest margin business, but it's not as simple as looking at the revenue profile and saying, wow, there's this massive mismatch. It must be a completely worse product. They can do things like double stack containers on the locomotives. So that's another very efficient way to move it. And that makes up for some of that revenue. But when we think about various businesses for Union Pacific, I would say intermodal is the one category where they have the least amount of pricing power. And if you were to think about the margin profile of the various business, I would say intermodal is probably in the 35 to 40% range. 
you have the bulk materials and industrial vines probably closer to the 40, 45% range. And the upside from there is in the 50% territory. It's really interesting. And if you haven't read the book, The Box, which is all about the shipping container, I'd highly recommend it. Would it be right to think in, say, 50 years time, all volume will be intermodal through rails? So you've definitely seen certain carloads that were previously not intermodal transition to the intermodal containers. That has happened. I think you've hit the limit likely in terms of how much can shift over to that form of transportation. When you start dealing with certain things like grain or something as extreme as crude by rail, you can never put crude oil into an intermodal container. There's a limitation to how much they can actually carry. And that gets into the diversification of different rail cars and rail car types. But in an ideal world, the rails would be dealing with the same type of container each time that allows for much more convenience and much more asset turn, much more efficiency as it comes to using the equipment that they have. But there's likely a limitation in terms of how much can actually move via intermodal. Got it. And in terms of pricing of what they move, is it based on volume? Is it end destination? How do they determine the rates that they charge customers? It's a mix of carload, also by weight. So dimensional pricing is a concept that's frequently used in transportation. You're going to be thinking about volume as it relates to size, so just traditional length and width, but also the weight. As you can imagine, when you're moving over mountains, the weight associated with any type of carload factors into how much fuel is needed. So you are going to see some pricing impact if you're moving heavier items. They do try to price in different ways, depending on who the customer is. So it's probably helpful to go through each and individual businesses. If you're looking at, again, the industrial customers and the bulk customers, they're dealing directly with producers and manufacturers to work on those contracts. And what you'll see typically in any given year is a 3 to 4% pricing hike. So they are enforcing pricing power. You can debate whether that's inflation or whatever it might be but they will re-up those contracts, mostly on an annual basis, unless they have something that's a little bit more speculative where they're going to be looking for a longer-term volume commitment. When it comes to intermodal, they have a little bit less pricing power there. And there, they are working through intermediaries. And that's an entire sector in the transportation universe, which is the intermodal operators. You have companies like J.B. Hunt, Schneider, Knight Swift, who all have intermodal operations. And those are the companies that interact with the end customer. So if something is being imported or exported into the U.S., likely to move on a ship and then transition to a rail, be on a truck at some point, J.B. Hunt would be the one negotiating. And what the rails do in that case is just work directly with those intermodal providers, figure out a specific rate card and work directly just with one specific customer rather than having to deal with all the smaller individual customers. So it's a wholesale pricing model, if you think about it, relative to a retail pricing model. And if we zoom out really quickly, just in terms of the industry, I have to imagine that the geography has a huge impact on what these rail companies move. Union Pacific out in the West versus some of the East Coast providers. Is it drastically different between them? Drastically might be a strong word to use, but you certainly see the mix and quality of volumes have an impact on the overall business. And there's good examples and bad examples. So at one point, coal volumes were a massive source of revenue and high margin for the rails. And Union Pacific was a major beneficiary of this, talking about 25 to 30% of revenues, whereas today that's high single digits. And that's a case of Powder River Basin, one of the major coal producing regions in the US. In the early 2000s, 50% of electricity was coming from coal. Now that's down to 20%. And who knows what the floor is for that when you have things like natural gas and a lot of the more clean energy replacing coal, which is chalked up to be a non-ESG friendly form of energy. So that's one example where it was a major drag on the business for the past 10, 15 years. They've been able to offset that with a focus on intermodal, which is, again, imports, exports. A lot of what you have coming from Asia is going through those Western ports. I think over 40% of import volumes come through the Western ports, Port of LA, Port of Long Beach, where Union Pacific has a stronghold there. And that differs from the East Coast ports, where there you're seeing a lot of exports of things like coal and other items. So that's where you have the differentiation. It's interesting to see 
as well some of the difference in strategy where Union Pacific has one main pier in the region, that's Burlington Northern. And over the past 15 years, Buffett famously through Berkshire bought Burlington Northern. They have never implemented what's known as precision scheduled railroading, which essentially has to do with less focus on volume and more focus on profitability. So move less, but make more money on what you're moving. Whereas Union Pacific, especially recently, has increasingly focused on the margin profile of any volumes they're moving. So over the past 10 years, you've basically seen a 400 to 500 basis point market share movement away from Union Pacific to Burlington Northern. And there's a healthy debate as to what is the right long-term strategy, whether it is just this pure focus on margin versus some focus on volumes associated with lower margins, but still better for the long-term in terms of both customers and shareholders. So that's where you see some of the differences between the rails. I think you framed the business model itself really well. So it's probably time we hit on the financial model. Eric Mandelblatt came on Invest Like the Best earlier this year, and he talked about rails and he talked about Union Pacific. And one thing he mentioned was they've got higher EBIT margins than Microsoft, which is both surprising given how capital intensive they seem and also how good a business Microsoft is. So can you walk us through the economics of a rail company through Union Pacific? What is it that allows them to earn such high margins? And what would the key markers be that you would pull out from their financials? It wasn't always this way. You have businesses now that are earning north of 40% operating margins. It was early 2000s that these were 10 to 15% operating margins, which is insane to think about. Taking a dollar and keeping 10 cents versus taking a dollar and keeping 40 cents when you're talking about a $90 billion industry. So a substantial amount of profitability there that was generated. And it traces back to the rail industry outside of Union Pacific. It's important to pay homage to the pioneer of all of this efficiency focus, Hunter Harrison, who was the godfather of precision scheduled railroading, which he implemented at Canadian National in the early 2000s, then at Canadian Pacific with the help of Bill Ackman, putting him into place there. And then finally at CSX, where he was put in by Ackman's disciple, who spun out, started his own fund, Paul Halal. And Hunter Harrison saw massive success at each of these businesses where he took out, we're not talking about a couple hundred basis points of cost, we're talking about thousands of basis points of margin improvement. So if you step back and say, okay, well, what were the drivers of this? To frame it simply, it was longer trains, fewer stops, less people. And that obsessive focus was what took that dollar where previously you might have been spending 30 cents of that dollar of revenue on labor, that number is now closer to 20 cents. So labor being 20% of revenue versus 30% of revenue, major in terms of cost opportunity that got removed from the system. You also had improvement from a fuel efficiency standpoint. So there's two drivers to this. There's fuel efficiency from the standpoint of we're not going to move locomotives if they only have 40 cars attached to them. We want to have extremely long hauls and length of hauls. So we are going to, rather than come by your grain facility four times a week and take 25 rail cars each time, we're going to come by once and we're going to take 100 and we're going to tell you exactly when that time is. So that's going to save you quite a bit from a fuel standpoint as you can spread whatever that is in terms of the amount of diesel that it would require to move across many more rail cars again, improving the economics. So fuel, that fluctuates as well, just in terms of fuel prices, while rails can pass through fuel prices, so they don't wear the brunt of the impact. It has a funny way of working its way into margins, where just the arithmetic of passing through fuel inflation actually does diminish your margin profile. But that's gone from basically mid-teens to around 10%, even high single digits for periods of time. So that was another main driver of, of the margin improvement. So there you have labor, 20%, fuel being another 10%, something called purchase transportation, which has to deal with all of the other movements that a rail has to require, other equipment that factors into things. That makes up another 20% of revenue. That's stayed more or less the same. That's probably come down from 25%. And then the last thing is depreciation and amortization. The reason why that's important for rails is because of the nature of the assets. Again, these locomotives have a 40-year useful life. The track has been around for decades. So that is held on the books 
at a substantially lower price than it would cost to build today. DNA being about 10% of revenue is mismatched with what you see from a CapEx perspective. So I think when investors historically have looked at, okay, how much cash am I actually converting from the income statement to the cash flow statement, where you've seen the mismatch was the DNA being significantly lower than the CapEx that actually had to go into the network. So earnings conversion was closer to 80% range. Whereas today, as they began focused on some of that efficiency, pulled back on some of that capital spending, you've seen that move slowly higher. And that is what could potentially offer a much more bullish regime for the industry if you see more and more of that cash conversion come into play. And you mentioned at the beginning that people might not want to use the rails, but they kind of have to. And then you just talked about how the rails have become more efficient. And as they've become more efficient, their margin profile has has significantly improved. None of that sounds great for the end customer because they've essentially become less flexible to the end customer who wants to move their grain or coal or whatever it might be from place A to place B. And now the rails are turning around and saying, you're doing it on our schedule. And our schedule just happens to work a bit better for us. Is that dynamic always at play in this industry? You don't come across many businesses which are able to treat their customers in quite a similar fashion and end up retaining them and improving their economic profile in the process. It gets into the regulatory dynamics again, which are fascinating. If you talk to the rails, they have a regulator who determines rates. And one of the drivers of those rate determinations is revenue adequacy, which is basically does your revenue and the return that you generate in terms of your assets, does that cover your cost of capital? And historically, rails have shown that they really haven't covered their cost of capital over time. Now, in recent years, that has changed and that has flipped where they they meet revenue adequacy standards. Now, the origins of revenue adequacy were created actually to support higher rates for the rails. It wasn't necessarily a protective measure. And there wasn't much discussion around whether this would actually be creating a rate cap for rails at any point. It would always be thought of as somewhat of a floor. I think what you've started to see recently over the past few years is shippers really pushing on the Surface Transportation Board, and the regulators in general to have a little bit of a cleaner system allowing for them to protest rate cases, make this a little bit more of a balanced market for them. So because they're captive volumes and they really have no other option, they aren't held completely hostage and they get some type of fair appropriate market rate. But I think you point out a very interesting point, and that is the shift in focus, I would say, over the past 15 years has been the shareholder focus, where if you look at the amount of job cuts that have happened in the industry, the frustration of some of the shippers, but the satisfaction of shareholders where Union Pacific from 2005 to today has massively outperformed the index. And there was a stretch of time from 2005 to, I want to say 2020, where they outperformed the market every year except for one. So just remarkable consistency and then remarkable cumulative outperformance. And that comes from maybe shifting focus a little bit away from your customer and being much more focused on the shareholder, which has its positives and negatives. And the last thing I mentioned is it's a really interesting dynamic because if you look at how the class ones operate, there's been all the shareholder pressure to implement precision scheduled railroading. Union Pacific was one of the last to do it when you look at Canadian National again started. Canadian Pacific, then CSX, and Union Pacific. And in those interim periods of time, you always have management teams dismiss the benefits of PSR and say it doesn't apply here or it's not a system that we can implement. But time and time again, it's proven that it has been a system that they can implement. And Union Pacific used one of Hunter Harrison's disciples to do it. So I think when we look at legendary management trees, similar to coaching trees, the Belichicks and the Bill Walshes, who have all these former assistants that are now leading teams other places. You have much of that in the rails as well. Keith Creel at Canadian Pacific. There's a large team at CSX. And Jim Baina was basically brought in as a free agent to Union Pacific, ran an operating plan for around two years and has since left and massively turned around that business by implementing all of these policies and that broader PSR scheme. It brings up an interesting point that you mentioned to me the other day as we were kind of thinking about Union Pacific in that the railroad that Buffett and Berkshire own, which is Burlington Northern, which is Union Pacific's main competitor out west, haven't implemented the same policy 
their margin profile looks materially different to Union Pacific and some of the other class ones. Is what you just said the opposite for them? And what are the reasons why they haven't implemented it? Or are there some other things going on there? It's a lot of the same reasoning in terms of why they choose to vocalize that it wouldn't necessarily work for them. And I think it's because they do have a customer focus more than a shareholder focus. But they're also quick to point out Matt Rose, who has run Burlington Northern, would often say, by operating this way, you are attracting regulators. So when CSX went through their change to PSR, there was a lot of disruption. So shippers constantly having issues. And what ended up happening was the business was producing incredibly strong numbers, but there was a lot of frustration with shippers to the point where the STB had a weekly call with CSX. So it was attracting a lot of focus. Who is this really benefiting? There's often claims of the long-term benefits, which I think we do see where you clean up a network, then you can run more efficiently over time. You have to take a step back before you take a step forward. But Burlington Northern has pushed against this. I think there's a case to be made that taking volume at 35% margin is reasonable, and you don't have to take every piece of volume at 45% margin or dismiss it completely. So it's an interesting dynamic where you have what you're prioritizing in terms of an enterprise, and then also the regulatory nature and the dynamics there where the more you push towards this focus on one particular stakeholder, in this case, the shareholder, that can attract things you don't want to necessarily attract. When you read about the rails, you can't help but read something about their operating ratios seems to be the one metric that investors hang their hat on and talk about a lot in terms of the profitability of, of rails and whether they're improving or getting worse in terms of their operating performance. Can you A, explain what operating ratio is? I think it's fairly basic, but then also why are people so insistent on this being the metric for rails? It's simply one minus the operating margin. So why they decide to go with a different metric than just saying operating margin, I actually don't know the history. I've tried looking a few times as to why that was what specifically stuck. But nonetheless, yes, when you hear of a lower operating ratio, that's actually a positive. That just means you have a higher operating margin. That has been the focus for shareholders for a long period of time. I think when I first started looking at the industry, it was a bit head-scratching to me. felt like a very specific number that didn't necessarily tie all the way down to the bottom line didn't tie even to something like as simple as cash flow when you factored in the depreciation and capex mismatch. But what I would say is it's a very simple way to analyze a network's efficiency. And it has been the driver of share outperformance over the years. If you want to look at companies that have been implementing PSR programs focused on improving operating ratios, as long as they're executing, those are the stocks that are outperforming the most. There's obvious reasons. If you see a company driving margins higher, that's going to be beneficial. But I think there's another piece of it as well, which is when you step back and you think about, again, this industry relative to all of the other subsegments of transportation. Rails were introduced in the mid-1800s. The technology hasn't changed that much. And you think about what exists today. Everything's intent on being delivered same day a lot of flexibility in terms of moving things all over the country, overnight shipping. It is almost the exact opposite of what a rail system represents, where it's literally stuck in where the tracks are, and you're not going to be building many more tracks from here. It's slower, and you're most beneficial if you're shipping a lot at the same time rather than smaller packages. It's very counter to what's going on in the economy today. Therefore, you need to focus on what you can do on your network and protecting the profitability of what still exists in that network. So I think that's another piece of why that metric is so key to the industry. And now what the majority of management teams get paid on is the operating ratio paired with some other longer term performance metrics. I want to come back to something that you said earlier. You said that Union Pacific has outperformed the S&P considerably since 2005. But the more interesting thing is that it's done so by outperforming the market in each calendar year, except for one. I'd assume this business would be really cyclical because it's heavily tied to the industrial economy. It's also heavily tied to consumer demand. Air, shipping, trucking, the other transport sectors seem to be very cyclical. But that record of outperformance for the rails that you mentioned suggests it's not. Can you help me understand what the difference is or even if there is a difference? Two pieces to the question. I think in terms of why there's been so much more cyclicality in the other markets, 
the easiest way to answer that is the light monopolistic nature or the lightly regulated monopolies that rails are. You don't have that in air freight where you can get a slip fairly easily at airports and you create all types of issues with a significant amount of competition and a lack of rationality between competitors and the way that they price. Trucking, it's a very similar market, very low barrier to entry there. Shipping became a standardized industry and then it has gone through an incredible amount of cycles where it's just challenging to operate these capital intensive businesses. I think the rails, while they benefit from all of those regulatory dynamics, that would be selling short what the management teams have done to protect their industry and, and their network. So you see a lot of working together. I think some of the research that you get to look at when you're looking at rails they work the lobbying efforts fairly hard. They have a lot of organizations that they collaborate with together to point out that the highway system is paid for by the government. The rail system is maintained by the rails. Isn't that a mismatch between trucking and the rail industry? And there are loads and loads and loads of these points that the railroads will make very clear. So they've made a good effort, both from a lobbying perspective, a regulatory perspective, and an operational perspective. Where does that leave them in terms of the volume outlook from here and sensitivity to cyclical outcomes? It's interesting. You basically had a very tight correlation to US GDP over the years. That broke in 2015 and 16 when this is a nature of the broader US economy. We've turned to a services economy. In 15 and 16, we actually had an industrial recession, but it didn't manifest into a broader US recession because the industrial market is a much smaller percentage of overall GDP. The service economy stayed strong while the industrial economy was hurt. Rails underperformed that year. I think going back over time, they actually have been much less cyclical than you would have expected. If you look in the 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, they were able to be cutting costs because there was a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of extra fat in the network, which was able to offset some of the volume declines and exposure to volume declines. Going forward, I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Now you're starting to get into more challenges. So just recently, kind of in the moment, you have Union Pacific, who has had to give two recent updates and cut guidance from a volume perspective, just because of what's happening in the economy today. And that's going to be exposure that's felt through their intermodal business, most directly. On the manufacturing side of things, there is a case that you could see more nearshoring, more manufacturing plants or facilities built in the US or in Mexico, which is more likely. That could be a net positive for them in terms of more volumes that they can move in the future. But you're never going to get completely away from the cyclical nature of volumes. It's just going to have to be offset by some amount of pricing and then some amount of cost focus or cost takeout in the future. It's a high capex industry, but they do seem to make quite a lot of free cash flow. How do they think about that from a capital allocation standpoint? These are mature industries. They don't have much competition. Are they giving the cash that they make back to shareholders in the form of dividends, they buying back shares. How do they generally think about that? And how does Union Pacific specifically operate? Yeah, I think decisions over capital allocation actually have huge implications for the rail industry going forward. There's a few pieces to it. We talked earlier about cash conversion. Previously, only 80% of earnings were converting to free cash flow. That, again, traces to the depreciation and CapEx mismatch. That number is closer to 100% now. What that does is it makes earnings, earnings per share, a better proxy for free cash flow per share. So if I say this business is trading at 20 times earnings, just flip that. And you're saying that this business is essentially yielding 5% free cash flow yield. All of that free cash flow is actually going back to shareholders now. Even on top of that, there's additional capital going back to shareholders because they've added leverage to the business. So five years ago, UNP operated with a turn of leverage. Now that's closer to two turns, a little north of two turns. I think that's completely reasonable given the revenue visibility that the business does have and the steadiness of the earnings stream. So what you have is 45% of NIG comes out via dividends. Railroads have a long history. I think any business with north of 50 years of operating history have a focus on dividends. The balance of it comes in the form of share repurchases. Just last year, Union Pacific bought back 3% of their market cap. And they continue to target sending back capital to shareholders via buybacks. So putting that together, you're looking at 5 to 6% of your investment is returned to you each year in the form of cash distributions in different forms. 
So over time, if you add in earnings growth into that equation, you have substantial upside and it becomes a very, very interesting business because you're not only de-risking your investment in the form of those distributions, but you're seeing growth into the multiple and that multiple compress over time, both in the numerator and the denominator. So where could this go wrong? I think if you look at railroads, historically, they've had high single-digit returns on invested capital. And even after all of this margin improvement, you're looking at low teens returns on invested capital. So they are still very capital-intensive businesses. And there has been an excessive amount of capital that's been required to maintain the networks, the equipment, and everything that's associated with it. They have been able to pull back, again, CapEx as a percentage of revenues. It's something that Burlington Northern scoffs at in terms of the idea of thinking about CapEx as a percentage of revenue. And I think there's completely reason to question that approach to things. When it comes to track equipment, you don't decide each year how much breaks and what breaks down and what you need to repair. It has to be much more reactive on top of just the natural maintenance that's associated with it. That's one piece of it. You can see a deterioration in the network that catches up to these businesses over time. I think there's also a question of whether they will be able to handle growth in volumes if that were to come. So if there is this bull case where the industrial economy sees this revolution and we see onshoring and you start to see more and more business come back to the rails, can their networks handle it or does it require another massive capital investment? And I think that would obviously throw a dent in this thesis that you could see this, again, massive amount of capital being returned to shareholders over time and much more efficiency. And I think that's ultimately where the debate lies, where Union Pacific, along with the other major PSR-focused rails, have shifted the capital allocation policies, shifted the capital structures. There's a willingness to operate with more leverage versus someone like Burlington Northern, which has a little bit more focus on the long-term needs of the network. A very interesting theme to watch and something that I think every rail investor has to have a view on in order to make these investments near term. You mentioned current events earlier and how Union Pacific has come out in the last few months to talk about some of those issues. We've had a lot more in the media about supply chains in the last couple of years than we normally do, particularly with Union Pacific operating out of the West Coast, where they've had some serious issues in ports there. How has that affected the business? How does inflation, you mentioned they can pass through inflation, but actually hurts their margins. How does some of the current events that are taking place today that seem to affect supply chains, how does it affect a business like Union Pacific? It affects them from a volume perspective, without a doubt. It slows down the network, it slows down the ability to move things, and any type of supply chain issue is felt throughout a network. So that means from ships to trucks to rail, they're all interconnected. The way that these companies have been able to offset some of that pain has been through enforcing demerge fees, essentially any type of delay, they are going to whack you on again ultimate focus on efficiency. If cars aren't unloaded on time, if they aren't there on time, if they're waiting in their, in your rail yard and you haven't picked them up yet, you are going to get slapped fees and fines on that. It's something, again, that shippers have brought up to regulators as something that should be spelled out more clearly and be evaluated as part of the process in terms of fee reviews. Now, that can't solve all of the issues. And you do see constant disruptions, whether it's something like the coronavirus, whether it's something like the supply chain backup, or things like hurricanes, which constantly impact rails in various portions of the US. And these are things that as an investor, you can look through and make adjustments for into next year, but they're constantly having an impact on networks from the pure scale and size of these networks, there's going to be things that slow them down. It's an interesting business and industry to look at because on the one hand, you've got some serious competitive advantage, huge barriers to entry. These things have been around for 150 odd years. There aren't going to be any new ones in terms of businesses. There also aren't going to be much new in terms of rails themselves. They've got pricing power. And then on the other hand, you've got some serious risk around regulation. It's not uncommon for rails to be nationalized in certain events. How would you think about the risk side of it more specifically? What would make you nervous as an analyst when looking at this business? Um, sort of in the medium to long term? I think they have cut a ton of fat and there are diminishing returns on the amount of costs you can take out. So 
go back to the end of last year, early this year, Union Pacific was talking about an operating ratio around 50. So 50% operating margins. That has proven to be a challenge. Now they will chalk that up to the supply chain issues, what's going on in the economy. But you start to wonder, what are you sacrificing by putting so much of this focus on margin? And can a network really operate that way? When you take out 30% of your labor force relating to the business and volumes are flat or down slightly, if you want to grow volumes, you probably need to bring labor back on. So how lean can you get? And then can you respond if there is upside? So that's one piece of it is if there's a lack of operational improvement left on the board, they become much less interesting businesses from an investor standpoint because they're a little bit more steady state. That brings volumes into the equation. Again, upside case being nearshoring, downside case being you have a continuation of what you've seen in the industrial economy, which is secular decline. That means less captive volumes for rails, less pricing power, and more competition over intermodal volumes, which again, is where they actually have to compete from a price perspective, and they have a lot less pricing power. So I think those are the negatives paired with the regulatory risk that always exists. And if they are creating the problem by being so focused on margins, that could speed up any type of reaction. It's been this way for decades, so it's hard to see that playing out. But I think those three things paired together would be the main risks that jump off the board. Rails seem fairly antiquated in terms of they didn't look like they've changed much in decades. You often hear in the auto industry about EVs and various other advancements to make them more energy efficient and generally better for the environment. Rails are better for the environment on a per volume basis in terms of what they can move across the country. But from a tech perspective, is there any talk or any plans to electrify rails or anything from that perspective that's interesting? They've continued to get more fuel efficient and locomotive advancements, I think, focus on that as well. I don't think you are going to see a full electrification push because it's a physics problem in terms of moving weight and how much weight you have to move on a locomotive. It differs from trucks where the weight equation might be more possible to figure out. But there's a lot that goes into the economics of trucking. And there's talk about how can trucks start to eat into that 500 mile to 700 mile length of haul market that rails control today, but would seemingly be available to them. One of them is electrification of the vehicle, saving on gas. Another thing is automated trucking, which then you just start to really resemble the rails if you have a fleet of trucks that's automated and just kind of moving down one lane on the highway because it's hard to see them moving between lanes without a driver. But nonetheless, I think that rails today, if you just look at fuel efficiency, you can move one ton to almost 500 miles on a single gallon of diesel. So it's, I think, four times as fuel efficient as what you have in the trucking market. And that's always going to be a big piece of the driver of the economics. And you could make an ESG case relative to trucking that rails are much more environmentally friendly. It's very debatable, but you can make the case for sure. And as we wind down the conversation, as you know, the last question tends to be on lessons learned and how they might apply to other industries and other investors. What from your time covering rails and Union Pacific specifically would you point to as things that you've learned or changed your mind on? So I think one of the biggest items or lessons today is just the idea of revenue and the quality of that revenue. It's something I tend to have a hyper focus on. But with all of these industries that have gone through massive growth, talking about network effects, here you have potentially the original network effect with the rails, the original OG networks themselves that have actually given up a lot of revenue or have sacrificed from a volume perspective because it just didn't make sense in terms of what's moving through the network. And I think there's always this idea of riding industry waves and then controlling what you can control. In this case, these management teams have controlled what they can control and done a very effective job in terms of what I would consider like saving in many ways an industry as it relates to shareholders by being so hyper-focused on all those things. That's one piece that I think is an interesting lesson. And the second piece, just from an investor perspective, is the importance of understanding how markets trade and how certain sectors trade. And I think we all like to have our own models for intrinsic value, discounted cash flow, the rate of return and earned on assets and various different cash on cash returns, return on equity. 
whatever metric you want to use, you can have your own methodology. But if you want to outperform in a certain sector, in this case, in transportation, there are usually key metrics, which are the drivers and the single driving force of what results in outperformance. So when I started looking at this industry and I wanted to fight the idea of the operating ratio, I wanted to fight the idea that one single person, in this case, Hunter Harrison, could be the sole driver and the sole person with the knowledge and operating chops to implement this. But the reality was the operating ratio was going to be the driver of outperformance of these stocks. And Hunter Harrison was able to do what many others were not able to do. So it was a bit of humble pie in in some ways, but also made me appreciate it's healthy to be an outsider, but it's equally healthy to understand how an industry operates and how the investors within that industry. Again, most of the transportation sector, it's dominated by what's referred to as the transportation mafia, which is a group of investors who've been around for decades and have known these names ins and outs for decades. And they have strong communication, strong views, and they are a driving force in terms of how these stocks trade. So that was a major lesson and key learning experience for me going through it and trying to fight reality in some ways. Excellent. Well, as the market starts to price profits more than revenues, it seems like the rails were ahead of their time. Matt, thank you so much for breaking down Union Pacific and the rail industry in general. As we said at the beginning, I think it's a very under-discussed business and industry relative to its importance to us on a day-to-day basis. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 